This week, this year, all wrapped up with a bow on it. And all I want for Christmas is some scientific proof of the multiverse. You complete nerd. Plus, play along at home as we pioneer a new game for the holidays. It's audio charades. Charades? Charades. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 18th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. Twenty fourteen, yep, it's basically over. Exactly the right time then to look back at the scientific highlights of the year and to help us do that is Lauren Morello, our DC based news editor on the line from Washington. Hi Lauren. Hi Kerry. And a happy twenty fifteen almost, but not quite. Likewise. Uh, Now, first, into space for the most well-covered story of the year, probably. Uh, It has to do with comets, or one comet in particular. Right, and that would be Comet 67P, which the European Space Agency's uh, Rosetta mission visited in November. It dropped a lander, Philae, down to the comet's surface. It's the first ever controlled landing on a comet. We've crashed things into comets before, apparently. And it, well, I mean, it's been a busy year for things happening in space, both near and far, as, as the News Review article points out. Sure. Um, this, uh, this is a year when uh, a lot of Asian nations had some big space successes. India sent a probe to Mars. Uh, China uh, landed a probe on the moon. Um, and closer to home, the commercial spaceflight industry had uh, some, some troubles this year. Uh, Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 uh, crashed, and uh, an Antares rocket made by uh, Orbital Sciences that was heading up to the space station had a problem at launch and exploded. Right, and we've covered both of those things in a little bit more depth in the news chat before. The other thing, of course, we've been covering in, in some depth is the Ebola outbreak, which has been an, you know another big um, story in public health, at least this year. It's true. Um, so the first case in the outbreak was actually... Um, in December 2013, but this year is the year that the epidemic really kind of exploded in West Africa. Um, at the end of the year, we've got the number of new cases slowing or declining in Liberia and Guinea. They're still rising in Sierra Leone, um, but there are some hopeful uh, signs that uh, some of the vaccines in development might um, turn out to be effective against the virus. Right. And I mean, we're we're continuing to cover those stories both remotely, but also uh, our reporter, Erica Czech-Hayden, we should say, has been on the ground in Sierra Leone for the past couple of weeks. Uh, and I'll direct people to nature.com slash news for her diary and video entries. Right. And we have a story this, uh, this week from Erica in Sierra Leone telling uh, the story of why some villages were able to essentially escape the epidemic and, and why some weren't. Now, a couple of big experiments, or at least very well-publicised experiments this year, uh, have not lived up to their expectations. The first experiment to mention is BICEP2. What was that trying to look for and and what happened? So BICEP2 is a telescope at the South Pole in Antarctica, and it was looking for evidence of gravitational waves from the Big Bang, which would confirm this idea that um, the universe expanded massively just after the Big Bang. And astronomers thought they found uh, these waves in the spring, and it was it was big news, but um, pretty soon people were poking holes in the results. And what next for this experiment, or what now? Critics have suggested that the telescope was 
measuring a signal that was polluted by cosmic dust. And some early results from uh, another experiment called Planck have confirmed that. Um, and the Planck team and the BICEP2 team are uh, soon to release a joint analysis that should uh, be kind of the definitive word on whether BICEP2 actually saw gravitational waves. Now, just last week, we covered a batch of papers that were being published by Nature and Nature Communications about cell reprogramming, uh, a positive end to the year, perhaps, for this field, but a very bad start, wasn't it? It was. Um, in January, um, a team led by researchers in Japan um, announced a really intriguing discovery that you could make uh, mature cells into basically any kind of stem cell you wanted by immersing them in acid or applying lots of pressure to them. But uh, just as with the BICEP2 gravitational wave results, the stem cell results you know, were quickly questioned. Questioned and then retracted. Yeah, they were retracted in July after um, folks had found evidence that the studies contained manipulated figures and images and several efforts to replicate them um, failed. And, you know, it's a bit of a a sad story. One of the co-authors on uh, the studies actually took his own life in August in, uh, in the wake of all this controversy. Um, and I'm going to point people to David Cyrnowski's coverage of that story as it's as it's continued to unfold throughout this year. Now, the final section of your news review um, starts with the line, what biohazards live in your refrigerator? Which is a question that the NIH has been asking itself quite a lot this year. The NIH has had an interesting year, the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Um, so uh, they found some 60-year-old smallpox virus that they had forgotten about in a refrigerator in a storage room in July, and the aftermath of this revealed uh, similar safety lapses at a lot of U.S. government labs that handle pretty icky um, viruses and other pathogens. NIH said in August that it had found a a box labeled 1914 that had uh, the ricin toxin and the bacterium that causes plague. In it, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had an incident where uh, researchers mishandled anthrax spores and exposed the whole lab to the risk of developing anthrax and accidentally shipped uh, H5N1 influenza, which is a strain that can cause pandemics, um, to another lab. They had meant to ship a much less dangerous virus. Yikes. I know that sometimes Amazon parcels get mixed up, but this is uh, something of a different order, isn't it? If you get any mail from NIH or CDC, uh, you might want to autoclave it before you open it. (laughs) Lauren, thank you. Uh, Now, you're going to do us one more favour before we let you off the hook, and that is to read out some quiz questions that listeners can take on, have a think about during the rest of the show, and then we're going to come back uh, and answer them at the end. Question one, drumroll please. Okay, question one. This year has yielded heaps of ancient treasures, including the oldest known feces, cheese, sperm, and abstract doodle. Which one of these is the oldest? Question two. The Hainan gibbon, which lives on an island in the South China Sea, is the world's rarest primate. How many of them are left? Question three. In March, researchers reported the discovery of a dwarf planet at the edge of the solar system. Its official name is 2012 VP113, but what whimsical nickname did astronomers give this dwarf planet? Putin, Biden, Snooky, or Goofy?
Okay, so what is the oldest? Is it poo, cheese, sperm, or the arty doodle? How many Hainan gibbons remain? And what nickname did astronomers give the little planet they reported this year, circling around outside Pluto? Lauren will be back later with the answers. Ooh. Coming up, the cosmologists who want to redefine science, and their colleagues who really don't. First, though, some of the very latest science of 2014. It's the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. There's a Japanese legend in which a kamikaze, or divine wind, saves the nation from invasion by Mongol fleets. Of course, we now know the word because of the World War II pilots also named after it. Now, the original legend has been upgraded to possible reality after geoscientists found evidence of typhoons in a sediment record from a lake. The legend talks of two kamikaze winds in the 13th century, and the sediment tells the same story, two instances of flooding in the same historical period. Storms like this could have been more common back then because El Niño weather systems were more frequent. More in geology. A species of coral reef fish could use camo smell to match its scent to its surroundings as a disguise against predators. The filefish gets the odour by eating the coral it lives near. An Australia-based team worked out what was happening by feeding some filefish their usual coral and some of a different type. They tested the disguise on some crabs first, who live in the coral and know its smell. They preferred the smell of the fish that had eaten the coral they live on. Then the more risky test. The fish were exposed to a predatory cod. Luckily, it had a hard time detecting them when they were near the coral they'd eaten. Find that study in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Some theoretical physicists would like to redefine science. They deal in abstractions and equations, and they struggle to apply their work to the observable universe. In fact, they may never be able to test really abstract ideas, such as whether Santa really can get to every house in a single evening, or string theory, or whether multiverses exist. But they don't care. They argue that being elegant and explanatory is as important as being testable. That has riled some old-school physicists who think the notion undermines science itself. Writing in a comment piece this week, George Ellis and Joe Silk call for this untestable brand of science to be called something else entirely. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Nature's senior comment editor, Joe Baker. She began by asking how the dispute came about. Where in science is this issue around the testability of theories actually arising? Well, at the moment, it's sort of at the edge of the universe. So um, a bunch of cosmologists are trying to sort of push the boundary of science um, by arguing that you needn't test some theories at all because they're just so good and so all expansive in what they cover that that you don't need to actually go and, and run an experiment to test them. So what kind of cosmology are we talking about here? Well, the authors, George Ellis and Joe Silk, um, they point to two areas. So the first one is string theory, a theory about um, all the fundamental particles in the universe. Um, And then the other theory that they're worried about is the theory of the multiverse, which is based on string theory. And it's the idea that our universe is just one of billions and billions of other universes out there, which are all sort of similar to ours, but have very different physical properties. And so the big problem here is that we just can't test. We, we're in one universe and it's a lovely theory, but what these guys are saying is there's no way of knowing. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so 
So even if these other universes existed out there, we could never communicate with them, so we would never know they were there. So it's fundamentally impossible to, you know, to judge what a universe would be like with gravity totally different strength or with the fine structure constant of physics being a completely different value such that atoms didn't exist. And what's the problem with string theory then? Well, string theory has several problems. So one is that it's not one theory, um, it's many theories. So it's not completely formally defined yet. There are lots of people working on trying to define it as a sort of grand unified theory of everything. Um, another problem is the strings themselves um, are so tiny. So these these things, they're one dimensions, but they're within a sort of 11 dimensional space. And all their other dimensions are all wound up really tightly. So they're there, but they're just so tiny that you'd need you know, enormous energies to actually sort of rip them apart in a particle accelerator or anything like that. And you'd just never be able to build such a thing. It would have to be you know, more powerful than a quasar or something to actually do any good. So that's just never going to happen. If we can't actually test it, if we can't find um, an experimental result that we, if we get it, it says, right, that's it, string theory isn't correct. Is string theory scientific? Or something else. And that's, <laughs> that's what these authors argue. So they argue it shouldn't be seen as physics, even though a lot of physicists are working on string theory and multiverse theory. They argue it should be seen as mathematical cosmology or some form of mathematics that's not strictly science. And how do these string theorists and uh, the advocates of the multiverse, how do they defend themselves? Do they believe they're doing science? I think they believe they're doing science. I mean, even the authors would contend that they're good good physicists and mathematicians. Um, so they sort of have a strong belief in the work they're doing and its value. So, I mean, these authors would argue that perhaps they have too much strong belief in the work they're doing. And of course, just because we can't test it doesn't mean it's not true. So that's, I suppose, I suppose that's a whole other philosophical route that, uh, <laughs> that we I could suppose, go down. Yeah, I suppose in mathematics there are lots of statements which are true or provable logically and I suspect that these physicists um, who work on string theory and the multiverse would like um, physics to move in that general direction so that it can grapple with these big questions because the, de- the downside of all this is if we really are limited to testability, then physicists can no longer ask how the universe started or, or you know, what is the origin of fundamental particles. They'll sort of bang their heads on, a, on the wall. And these amazing questions that we want to be able to ask, I suppose. This idea of falsifiability and, um, and being able to test theories, has that always been um, the mark of a scientific theory? It's been a, a long-evolving uh, issue, so it's, it's basically as old as science itself. So people have worried about things from, you know, from the age of Ptolemy and the Greeks sort of right through. Um, things got more sophisticated in the 20th century. So Karl Popper and his definition of science, it must be falsifiable. If you can't come up with a, a, you know, some observation that would disprove it, then you shouldn't, shouldn't consider that a proper scientific theory. And why is this question important? Is it just for cosmologists and theoretical physicists or is there a bigger issue at stake here? The authors are worried, I mean, that this could undermine science itself. Ideas like the multiverse and string theory are very popular, uh, so in books and in the media. And if those ideas are being put out there as this is what modern science is, then that's quite misleading, these authors would argue, to the public. And it could 
um, potentially confuse students or school kids about what real science is and the fact you do have to build experiments and test test them you know maybe politicians would say well we don't need to build another you know large hadron collider at cern or something because you can just go away with a pencil and come up with some nice theories thank you so um so it does have wider much wider impact so every scientist should should be concerned about how science is defined and people working at the edges of that should be very conscious of it. We're not quite done with the highlights of 2014, and there will be a test in a minute. Well, the answer to Lauren's quiz, at least. So stand by for that. But first, the parlour game to end all parlour games. It's podcast-friendly audio charades. The idea is simple. One of the three of us, Jeff, Lizzie and I, will receive a card with a science word on it. This person will attempt to perform it as a charade, or for the Americans who are listening, charade. But of course, because charades are the least audio-friendly game ever, person number two will audio describe what's happening. Person number three with uh, this bucket on their head, and you listening along at home or at work, can join in and try to guess what's being acted out. Now, there's no TV programmes, books, etc. here like normal charades. These are science things, processes or concepts. So hang on, someone is acting. Yep. Someone's describing the acting. Yeah. And someone's guessing. Yeah. But with a bucket on their head. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Our glamorous assistant, Emily Bannum has dreamt up some words and is holding up the first one. Ready? I'm going to do the charade. The bucket is going on the head, Lizzie, if you wouldn't mind. Here we go. Can you still hear me all right? (laughs) You sound like you're in a bucket. (laughs) Ready? Okay, Kerry's standing up. She's lifting up one finger, nodding. One word. She's holding up four fingers. Is Is it four syllables? She says yes. She seems pleased with the progress so far. She seems to be injecting something into her right arm. She's now injecting something into my right arm. Um, some kind of vaccination? Uh, she thinks that that is bang on. She's really happy. Yay. Oh, I think that's is the that end of round answer? one. Yay! Congratulations. <laughs> <sighs> that was remarkably easy. Thanks, guys. Good describing, good guessing. We're switching around now. Uh, so, Jeff, you're going to do the charade. Lizzie, you're going to describe. And I'm putting myself in the bucket. I'm ready. That's a great improvement. Thanks, Marsh. (laughs) It's pressing on my nose. Jeff is looking exasperated already. Something's very, very small, and he's like firing very small things, and they're exploding. It's kind of very big, kind of maybe like even collisions of things with like jets coming out. It's a large hadron collider. Um, He's looking down at things through what may or may not be some kind of microscope, and then he's firing them, and they are exploding. Wait, he's lying on the floor. Wait, now his second half of his arm's fallen off. Okay, wait, let's recap. So he was looking down and then he lay on the floor and he was looking up. Something fascinating in his hands that is like a ball shape, that, uh, a globe, a uh, crystal ball. Okay, okay, crystal ball is it's a good. crystal ball. He's looking into the future. So, And that was the second word, first word. Uh, so he's pointing down um, bits of his body, perhaps bones, that he is able to see. The so bucket hasn't really got any... How do you look at bones, Kerry? What? How, how, how might you look at bone? Uh, in a microscope. No, no. Um, in an x-ray. Yay! <laughs> x-ray crystal ball! X-ray crystallography! Yay! <laughs> All right, so round we go again. I'm going to charade this time. Jeff, you describe Lizzie your guessing which means the bucket is yours. One finger is being 
One, one word. She's nodding, and now she's raised all five digits. Five syllables. And is smiling, and she's just stuck her thumb up again. That means yes. She is being very theatrical, lifting her arms up and sort of almost trying to swim to the、mm. ceiling. She's sort of swimming. She motioned lots of little tiny circles all beside each other, and she's nodding. She thinks I've got it, but I really don't. Um. She's dancing again. Really, Kerry, stop dancing. She's motioning waves with her hands, kind of calypso dancing, like you would on a beach, and swimming. She's now swimming and surfing. So you're、like、she's、Hawaii? motioning surfing. Yes,、yeah, she's nodding at Hawaii. Okay, Hawaii's good. Oh, is it Lani Akea? Yes. Yay! <laughs> What is that? So Lani Akea is a Hawaiian word meaning, I think, immeasurable heaven, and it was、um, the supercluster that the Milky Way lives in、um, that we only found by a new definition of superclusters that was created earlier this year. It's the biggest thing that we know to exist. It's quite hard to do it in a very small soundproof box. I thought that was a ribosome.、Uh, so Jeff, you're going to be charading, Lizzie describing, and I'm going to be in the bucket. I was bad at being in the bucket last time, so let's see how this goes. Best place for you. One word. He's flapping his arms like their wings and sticking his bum out slightly. Bird、um, duck. Yeah, I would say so.、Um, some kind of migration.、Um, he's pointing his arm going across the sky as if maybe it's moving in that direction. Is he really a dinosaur? Oh well,、wow, good point. No, he's having a little、um, wash. It looks like. And he's flapping bird bath. So now he's moving very slowly, very kind of gliding through the sky, and like maybe like ejecting something else out, like separating from him. And he's got like really long arms that perhaps you know maybe have solar panels on them. Are you Rosetta?、Um, <laughs> What was all this diversion about a bird bath? I believe it may well have been a rubber duck in the bath, which of course, where have you been? The comet. Churium of Jerusalemenko. It looks an awful lot like a little rubber duck. All right, Jeff. Bucket. One finger is being held up. One word. Small little sort of creature with little flappy, very short wings. Oh, wobbling, wobbling its bum now and laughing, but the laughing is probably not part of it. Sniffing at something, looking excited. Hang on, is this one word? Yes, it's one word. I think so. Yeah, it's wiggling its bum again. Twerking. Oh, there might be—I don't know. She's demonstrating perhaps something sticking out of its midriff, like feathers, maybe, or something about feathered dinosaurs. And now demonstrating so two fingers coming out of her head and making long appendages. It's one word with four syllables. Yes, she's nodding her head. Now she's signalling that she maybe is holding、uh, an implement and waving it in the air, or that's the first syllable. Hi, long. Pole. Oh,、uh, she's excited about that. Pole cat. First pole cat. syllable, pole. <laughs> Polio, polio. Now the whole thing again. The whole thing again. A very short, flappy wings creature is back.、Uh, she's going from place to place, sniffing something across the other side of the room. Ooh, that looks nice. She says, rubs her hand on her stomach. Oh, And... oh!、Uh, polar migration. No. Oh. It's only one word. Policing. On there. Oh, now we're doing. We've got something different. Looks a bit like a leaf, flower. Pollinating. That was the concept of pollination. Well, well done. I wish I'd seen that. All right. Well,、uh, that was super, and they're going to be on Twitter in the shape of a few photographs from audio shards. So we, for three, will look forward to that happening. The bird bath incident <laughs> will stick in my auditory memory for a very long time. So thank you both for joining me. Now then, how did you get on with that quiz? Here's Lauren with question one. 
Okay, question one. This year has yielded heaps of ancient treasures, including the oldest known feces, cheese, sperm, and abstract doodle. Which one of these is the oldest? And the answer is... If you guess the fossil sperm from a giant crustacean called an ostracod, you're correct. It's the oldest at 16 million to 23 million years. And that compares to the doodle, thought to have been carved into a shell half a million years ago by ancient human Homo erectus. The fossilised poo is 50,000 years old, discovered at an archaeological site in eastern Spain, and the cheese is just 3,800 years old. It was discovered tucked away with mummies in an early Bronze Age cemetery in Xinjiang, China. And here's Lauren with the next question. Question two. The Hainan gibbon, which lives on an island in the South China Sea, is the world's rarest primate. How many of them are left? And the answer is... If you guessed a number between 23 and 25, you're correct. That's how many gibbons are left living in less than 20 square kilometres of forest. That 20 square kilometres of forest on Hainan Island hosted more than 2,000 Hainan gibbons in the 1950s, but just 23 to 25 today. Logging has destroyed the gibbon's habitat and poaching has further reduced its numbers. The gibbon is perilously close to extinction and that would make it the first ape to be wiped out because of human actions. Ready for question three? Question three. In March, researchers reported the discovery of a dwarf planet at the edge of the solar system. Its official name is 2012 VP113, but what whimsical nickname did astronomers give this dwarf planet? Putin, Biden, Snooky, or Goofy? And the answer to that one? If you guess Biden, you're right. Astronomers nicknamed the dwarf planet in honor of the U.S. vice president because the dwarf planet's official name includes VP. And by the way, when I spoke to the Discovery team for the show back in March, they hadn't come up with a nickname yet. Uh, here's a clip of me trying to persuade author Chad Trujillo to call it something else. I don't suppose you have a name for this thing yet, do you? Uh, no, we don't have a name. Uh, I guess we should start thinking of one. But uh, currently the, the name is 2012 VP113, and that's not a name we made up. That's a name that the Minor Planet Center uh, gave it. Maybe we should call it Chad for the shorthand uh abbreviation in this conversation uh well you could call it uh chad and scott since my my uh friend scott shepherd helped me find it except the thing is we can't really just name it after anybody there's rules about these things so we'll have to think about we'll have to take a look at the rules and think about what what might be a good name Fair enough. The rest of the quiz, which we heartily encourage you to join in with, is at nature.com slash news, along with all the rest of the year-end jamboree. Finally, a few thanks to end the year. Thanks to the pod team for all your talking, editing, production and ongoing genius. In no particular order, Noah Baker, Jeff Marsh, Charlotte Stoddart, reporters Ewan Calloway, Lizzie Gibney and Marion Turner, and to Thea Cunningham, who hosted the show up until October this year. Thanks to all the news editors, many and varied, who have found time to chat and provide feedback around throwing words around on pages. To our contributors too, scientists from all disciplines and corners of the world, thanks. And of course, thank you for listening. Join us again next year on the 8th of January, when we'll be kicking off the year in scientific style, predicting what to watch in 2015 and bringing you a splash of the newest science of the new year. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>